The opinions and views expressed on this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information about the show or other programs on KUCI, please log on to KUCI.org for the latest program schedule. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. You're listening to Real People of Orange County, and I'm your host, Kimberly Martin. This show is a fun and informative look inside the lives of Orange County's best and brightest. These are people who serve their community in a meaningful capacity on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Oh my gosh, look who's in the studio with Kimberly. Still here. I just can't believe it. I can't believe it either. It's just like the new job is just taking in a little bit of time to kind of uh, load up and get ready to go. So I'm going to be I here never this heard... week and next week. So you have never heard what's that? I, I've never heard of any new job taking so long to get you geared up. I know. I'm, you know, my employer is just kind of lucky that, you know, it's a recession and, you know, I could have found something else right now if it wasn't so hard to find jobs lately. But, yeah, um, yeah. you could have. Yeah. So oh, man. well, so to, to my benefit, you get to be here with me today. And, yeah, um, to my benefit too. I like being here. Can Can you hear me? Okay, I, I can hear like you I'm great. S- like spotty? Is no, you're not spotty. Or? No, you're good. Okay. Well, um, I just uh, I just thought I was going to be trying to figure this out alone <laughs> today, and I alone to in the you, wilderness. I wasn't really ready for it because, you know, I'm one of those people that I forgot everything I learned in school. Well, that's always an issue, isn't it? You know, I mean, but I mean, it's just a thing of repetition. If you keep doing it, eventually you'll learn it. Okay. Well, since I haven't done it at all yet, I guess that's part of the problem. <laughs> that, that would be a problem. I've, yes. had, I've had you taking care of me so well in the past. Your human pacifier. Almost a year. Can you believe it's almost a year? It is almost a year. I, yeah. I'm impressed with myself. I, I didn't think I could keep together my act for very long on anything, but yeah, you know, I do have growing children and I've kept them, so... You've kept them and the radio show. So. And the marriage, too. That's and the a, marriage. That's no small task, boy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Not that that's any reflection on my lovely husband. Okay. Who never listens to my show. I don't know why I even bother to pay the compliment. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you know, family members are some kind of weird. Sometimes they don't appreciate what you do. Maybe not, yeah. And this is one aspect of your life where he doesn't appreciate what you do in it. And so, yeah. Maybe it's better that way. Yeah, I, I get away with saying a lot of different things about my brother's girlfriend on this air station, so then <laughs> he doesn't listen, so great for me, you know, and something like that, yeah. Great for the rest of us, too. Uh-huh. All right, so thank you for not leaving me, and I guess You're I get welcome. to have you again next week, right? Yeah, I'll be here next week, too. Okay, well, that'll be good, because then, then I could just delay my demise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're, you're, wondered, you're wandering off into the dead air. That's true. Yeah. I think it could happen. I think so, it could. Somebody's here making sure I don't blow it. <laughs> okay, so, well, listen, I was so excited to have Erwin Chemerinsky He was here. exciting, yes. Wasn't he phenomenal? He was phenomenal. He's like the grandpa that everybody wants to have. Oh, you thought of him as grandfather, Lisi? I a thought of bit. him as like a mercurial little kid. Oh, okay. I had a whole different experience. No, he was just like did. a delightful grandfather that everyone wishes that they had. Are you really that much younger than me? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that the people I think are youthful, you think are grandfatherly? Yes. Oh, that's yeah. just so pathetic. I didn't think I was like that. Oh, um, well. Or old enough to be like that. Well, okay, but so what was neat about him, I want to give the, the listening audience a little bit of a follow-up. So my friend who was here... 
in the studio with us asking questions of him and trying to determine what law school to go to. She applied to Stanford. She applied to Berkeley and, and lives here in Orange County, never even thought to apply to UCI. Uh, took his offer of taking, going to walk in and listen to a class, which he you know, openly offered that to anybody who was interested in the law school, and went in and listened to a class and just came out starry-eyed. Well, it would be easy to. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, well, she had an uninterrupted hour with him, but she came out starry-eyed and was so excited about the possibility of going to UCI Law School. So I just thought that was a real feather in in his cap and in the law school's cap, and was pretty neat. Yeah, it's definitely pretty neat. So, okay, so on the heels of that, we have some guests in our in our studio today that run a small boutique litigation firm. And I thought it would be really interesting to have these folks in to talk about what it's like to start a law firm and what it's like to run a law firm in Orange County as well. So we have with us a managing partner of Katz and Yoon, Michael Katz, and his partner, Melissa Yoon, in the studio. Welcome. Hi, Kimberly. Thank you. It's great to be here. Good. I'm so glad. You're I here. second that motion, Kimberly. Okay, good. Are you guys comfortable? Do you have enough? We can like make move that a little closer so you don't have to lean forward. Maybe that'll off these microphones. I think something. we're good. Okay, good. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I don't know enough about the legal climate here in Orange County. So I was told that, that you would probably share a lot of insight because you have you've been you've both have been practicing lawyers for quite some time and now you're here in Orange County setting up um, a relatively not a new law firm to you but a, a new a new entity right actually that's correct we've been in business together for uh, uh, I'd say almost eight months okay and have you not been practicing together for that long or did you practice in another a lifetime ago together. We practiced formerly at a firm called Morrison and Forster, which is a Bay Area headquartered firm that's probably the largest or the second largest law firm in California. Okay. And it's a global firm. Closer. Yeah, you want to be closer. Okay, I'll get closer. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and, um, and then when th- that firm dissolved its Orange County office, much to the chagrin of the legal community here in Orange County because they'd been here for a long time, um, all the partners and associates spread to the you know four corners of the earth in Orange County, and our firm is um, an attempt to bring people back together actually and start practicing again. This oh, is the first step to create some of the love that you had way back then. That's exactly right. We're all trying to recover something from our past. Yes, well, <laughs> it's just about how far back you reach is really what determines the kind of problems you had. You know, law is a very infantile <laughs> practice at root, so. Oh, really? You think that? No. I didn't think so. <laughs> Well, but what I think is interesting about that is here you are all down in Orange County, and a San Francisco firm says, eh, no, we're calling you people back. And there's just no way, once you've lived here with the climate, that anybody would really ever go back to the, the cold, damp Bay Area. Well, the, the, the firm has uh, an office in Los Angeles and an office in San Diego, and they assume that all the lawyers here would be happy to go practice in L.A. or San Diego. And actually, both Melissa and I had practiced in L.A. before, and it was a little bit of a shock to them, perhaps, to see that people actually wanted to stay in Orange County which is something people in the Bay Area don't really understand. They don't uh, relate to us, do they? Not in the least. And I think that was part of the scenario, if you will. Oh, I love that. Well, okay, so let's talk a little bit about that because we have law students here in Orange County. And 
you know, they could end up at uh, here at, U- at UCI. They could end up all over the map depending on where their internships lead them. Um, what are some good reasons to stay here? Uh, I'll field that question, but Melissa will probably have more to say on it than me. Um, I think that's a, a great question from the standpoint that people have a bias in Orange County about staying in Orange County for some reason when they grow up. And maybe they think that the real action is in Los Angeles or it's in New York or somewhere else. And right. the, the truth is that Orange County is a very, very vibrant legal community. And I've practiced in New York City and I've practiced in Los Angeles and I have something to compare it with. And I had those biases too when I lived elsewhere. And when I came here, I was expecting... Um, Country I, I, lawyers. Yeah, no, I know. I thought I thought maybe this is a form of status derogation. I've been relegated <laughs> to the outer provinces. Some way, somehow, I would get back to where it mattered most. And the truth is, that's not at all the way it is. And Orange County has a, just a wonderful legal community. It's very close knit, and lawyers from different firms know each other very well. Probably much more so than you would find in Los Angeles. And um, there's a special feeling to practicing here. Well, that's interesting. I mean, because you came from New York. You went to law school in New York, graduated from Harvard. So that says a lot. It really does, doesn't it? I think it does. And I mean that honestly. It's not a pitch for Orange County. It's um, just my experience of it. Okay, Melissa, pop in here. Well, my perspective is um, similar in that I didn't start my legal career in Orange County. I, naively enough, uh, didn't fully appreciate the the um, caliber of the legal community and the scope of the legal community that was down here when I was practicing in L.A. I grew up in San Diego, and so Orange County to me was just a place that I would drive through when I would drive to L.A. Right. Um, And I was very pleasantly surprised when I moved my practice down from L.A. to Orange County to discover it's a very collegial community. It's It's a community full of high caliber, sophisticated lawyers and there are a lot of clients in the Orange County community who are um, uh, very rewarding clients to build business relationships with and partners with. Okay. Um, It's interesting because you you both have sort of touched on something that I don't think is just in the legal profession. It's, it's probably spans multiple, multiple professions and that people really have kind of a little, a a little uh, biased against Orange County when you're polarized between the two bigger cities of San Diego and Los Angeles. And, and I, I find that interesting. I, um, I think it's, I think, Somewhere along the line, it's, it earned its reputation for a reason, and I'm not sure what that is. But it's a really refreshing commentary to hear you say as lawyers that have obviously um, had lots of choices made available to you to practice anywhere um, to choose this. It's a much friendlier place to be. Is it like there's a bit of a load off? You don't have that edge that you have when you're in a big city? You know, um, But you just get it, to practice your craft and enjoy it? it? It is a bit like that. There's not the things about Los Angeles that I didn't like and that I wanted to get away from was, uh, was all the traffic, the congestion, the people. I think in the legal career in California, I'm not going to say across the board in the legal community across the country, but I think in California, people tend to have sharp elbows. Mm. And so um, it's going to depend on... Do, does that mean, you know, you feel the competition from your colleagues more? It can. What it can that be, be that. It's um, in a litigation practice in particular. I think um, 
people can, for the most part, people are professional. Right. But when you're zealously representing a client, uh, emotions can get heated even on behalf of the lawyers. Right. And I find that that happened much more frequently among the lawyers that I interacted with in L.A. Than here. Than here. Huh. I don't know if Michael has the same experience that I have. I think whenever you have a larger environment, you're going to have a greater degree of anonymity. Mm-hmm. And anonymity breeds a lack of restraint. Oh. And uh, on one hand, and on the other hand... They unleash on you because they don't have to see you at the dinner table. Perhaps. Yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, I think that Orange County is, is a... As a community, is a very pragmatic-oriented business community, and that tends to be part of the ethos that you find in the professions that are rooted here. And so lawyers here seem to understand in some more basic way that it's not true of all lawyers here, and it's certainly not true that L.A. lawyers aren't like this too, but to a greater extent here you find that they're very pragmatic and conflict for its own sake is not something that is rewarded or viewed as a positive attribute. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, So, Melissa, you're both litigators, and I'm looking at you, and I'm sorry. My first impression of you is that you're just a sweet gal. How are you you that way in court, or do you come across really tough? Because you were just talking about those sharp elbows. Do you have them? I do. <laughs> she, she lowered her voice a couple octaves. And have they been bloodied lately? Um, lately. What would you define as lately? I don't know. Um, last few months? Yeah, you know. Um, as long as it takes to, you know, do a, the average trial that I, you work on. Yeah. <laughs> I like to um, you kill more bunny, kill kill more bees with honey, right? Okay. Um, and when I need to flip a switch, I do flip the switch. And I, I um, when I am interacting with opposing uh, counsel, I am not seeking to stoke a fire. I'm not seeking a fight. Mm-hmm. And I start off with a uh, level of respect that I think all people should be accorded in a professional business type relationship so okay so let's tell the listening audience you draw a distinction between legal firm and a litigation firm let's talk a little bit about that um well we draw a distinction between um a boutique or smaller practice like what we formed and a larger firm which is a multi-service firm that has that's global in reach or national in reach and has multiple offices and the legal profession right now is going through a major changes. Uh, I would say almost an upheaval in the profession um, because there's a contraction in legal services. There are more and more firms trying to become bigger and global. So it's sort of a race to see who will live and who will die. Kind of like the big accounting firms did. Exactly in the, like in that. The 90s. Yeah. Um, so the big model firm, you would say it's not thriving or it is thriving? I would say it's um, some of the big firms are thriving okay. and some of them are not and they're straining. And we're seeing every year or so another big firm that seemed like they would be around forever, a bedrock of the legal community, all of a sudden announces that they're folding their tent Um, And, you know, you could think of Heller Ehrman, which was a very highly respected firm based in San Francisco. Um, Howry, 
uh, you know, there's a long list of firms that you would think they were going to be around forever, and all of a sudden... Maybe, oh, the old established firms. Yes, and, and maybe they put too many eggs in one or two baskets in terms of a large client, or maybe they um, said, we got to grow real quickly. We better lure away a lot of very high-end lawyers from other firms and offer them huge Packages, signing bonuses and yeah. huge salaries that are then locked in, like a sports team that decides that we got to win the NBA championship, so we're going to exceed our cap by a lot of money and then worry about it later. Do most of those, the big firm models, do they try to be the be-all and the end-all of every client's needs? You know, having departments that can fulfill, you know, cradle-to-grave kind of issues that they're their personal life and their their I'm I'm thinking to, I'm sorry to even bring this up. Um, I watch television <laughs> every now and then. Uh oh, this is taking this a negative is, this turn. Is, this is going. <laughs> we're gonna. Yes, it probably is. I love the show The Good Wife, and so I'm really fascinated by a lot of the financial problems that they portray in that show. You're, he's giggling, um, but they also deal with everybody's divorce too. So that just seems so atypical to me that a law firm would would. Uh, run that large of a gamut to meet the needs of their clients. The firms that Michael has mentioned certainly don't run that broad. Okay. So family law would not be a practice area that they would try mm. to master and be able to provide to their clients. They would refer that work out. In other words, Hollywood's not being realistic? <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> what, a sh- what a surprise. <laughs> well, the firms actually are being very strategic. What they really want is as much high-end work that they can get. So they have a notion of what they want in terms of a fee mm. and then what work will provide for that premium. And, if, and, and what's happened to the firms over time is some um, work has become more commodity-driven. So let's say real estate, which was a major driver in the market here in Orange County, right. went from being a core practice at large firms to being sort of a commodity practice that maybe wouldn't command the rates that they were trying to get. I see. And so rather than keep the firms or these offices together, even though they were sort of very organically created and grown, it was sort of, see you later, you guys. <laughs> and um, when you start having that kind of... Tr- um, fluidity and, and mobility in institutions, it tends to erode the stability of those institutions. Um, and that's what's happening. So would you come away with some advice for graduating law students today in terms of how to focus their energies when they are either choosing an area of interest um, in the field of law? Well, I think if one thing is true, it's that your area of interest that you choose when you come out of law school may not end up being the area of interest you practice in when you uh, for the long term. Right. I started law school wanting to do entertainment law, mm. uh, and then I ended law school wanting to go into criminal law. Oh, uh, I wanted wow. to be a federal prosecutor. And several years out, I decided, no, I want to do employment litigation. Huh. So I think it really varies depending on the types of clients and the type of work you encounter. Okay. And I would, my advice would be to remain, uh, have an open mind. Okay. Just to clarify for the listeners, what is litigation employment, or I'm sorry, employment litigation? So employment, that's a great question. Uh, Employment litigation is almost any type of, well, let me back up even further. If somebody feels that they have been discriminated against in their job or that they have experienced some form of harassment, be it sexual harassment or another type of harassment or retaliation, or they feel that they have not been paid all wages they are due, they haven't received meal breaks or rest breaks, that sort of thing, they can bring claims to 
recover damages for the for those types of um, right. alleged wrongs, and the litigation is uh, when that case is or when that, those claims are actually in court or before an administrative agency. So my, my role in that context is re- to represent the employer. Okay. okay. All right. So do you find um, <clears throat> wrongful termination, discrimination, harassment? Orange County, they run the gamut of all these types of accusations? All of it. Yeah. Although my clients are, uh, <coughs> they may be Orange County-based, but a lot of them have pro- have employment issues for which they seek my counsel across the country. How often does Walmart come up? <laughs> now, I told them out in the lobby that occasionally Heather will become controversial. <laughs> and we told you we would say no comment. <laughs> I don't see you saying no comment to anything, Michael Katz. <laughs> I'm that quick a study. Yes. I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> That's funny. I know. Heather loves to push the hot buttons. <laughs> Poor Walmart. Don't you feel sorry for them? They're in the news this week. Really stressing out over uh, a, a lot of these issues and how they're going to pay for the increased payroll tax. So let's let's not beat on them anymore. I don't know. Okay, go ahead. Beat, oh, them. I'm, beat them on them. Uh, no, anyway. uh, um, yeah, that's all I had. <laughs> that's it? You're out? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's for this particular time, yes. <laughs> well, do you have you represented large companies like Walmart? And can you feel some of their pain? Or are we, I uh, have represented large companies like Walmart. And uh, companies that are that large have are are usually the product of mergers and acquisitions they're usually the product of many companies being stitched together into uh, some form of patchwork quilt Mm -hmm. and it can be very difficult to unify policies across an organization that's that large and to ensure that policies are being followed appropriately Um, so I I do it's Changing policies, even in a, in a most um, seemingly benign way for an organization that large, is akin to trying to steer the Titanic in a field of icebergs. Right, right, and and to try to avoid them. Okay, so you find yourself always on the side of the employer. Um, is that how you how you got into this work? You helped one particular employer, and you decided you had a passion because you have on your on your bio th- that you work on a lot of these employment related issues. And so you you mentioned that that kind of came up later in your legal career. You know, it was actually not representing the employer. Um, the f- the first employment side or employment type of case that I handled was representing a very high-level executive in an employment, uh, basically an employment compensation dispute and negotiating out a resolution or a um, departure under his employment contract. And that is what I found that very interesting, and I did not at that time make any choice in terms of I'm going to represent only employees or I'm only going to represent executives or I'm only going to represent employers. I just knew that I found the human aspect of the practice to be very interesting. At that time in a person's life or yeah. a, cor- a, com- a company's life. Yeah. Okay. Actually, I do have a follow-up <clears throat> to that now that I'm thinking about it. In the last few years, um, we've seen some strict guidelines for uh, people that are non-salaried employees as far as when they can take their breaks and when they can take their lunches and stuff. Is that in, because there were so many successful litigations brought for, um, for from employers saying that they were abused in that regard? Or Well, um California is a very difficult place to be an employer. There's a lot of laws, statutes, regulations, wage orders that employers have to comply with. And there are myriad ways in which 
an employer can step in it. Yeah. For lack of a better term. And um, there's a very large plaintiff's bar. And people have uh, kind of capitalized on some, I'm not going to call them technicalities, but there are, it's just tough to be an employer here. So when people have filed suits, often if those suits have been successful, either through a judgment, most often it's through a settlement, mm-hmm. um, there'll be follow-on suits against other employers because that turns into a lucrative practice for the plaintiff's bar. Um, and you you saw an explosion of meal and rest break cases that ultimately... Of what kind of cases? Meal and rest break. For so, non-salaried employees. Okay. So if you have to punch a clock. Correct. Okay. Yeah. And there was some confusion in the law as to what the law actually required. And so the cases went up to the Supreme Court and Supreme Court provided some clarification. So, okay. So are those, do those tend to be some of the more interesting um, employment and labor law issues being addressed in the courts today? Or are there some other ones that you'd like to share? There's sexier ones, shall I say, (laughs) than just wage an hour. I'm always blown away by how well-informed Heather is over here. She must have an endless amount of time to read up. (laughs) I'm really irritated and jealous half the time. Or she's been punching a lot of clocks. (laughs) That too. (laughs) No, some of the more interesting issues being addressed by courts today deal with Facebook, which may come as no surprise. Yeah. But um, so one example. Perfect for our listening audience because, yeah. you know, they're, they're diving in deep with that one and oh, not yeah. thinking of the consequences. Well, one, two, there's two interesting aspects going on right now with respect to Facebook, at least two, I should say. One of them deals with, um, is, let's say, an employee feels that they've been wronged or they don't like some sort of aspect about their job. They post that on Facebook. What happens if the employer sees that and wants to take action? What happens if other employees that the employee is friends with comment on that post? And then they engage in a Facebook discussion about the working conditions. What if the employer takes action? There's, uh, you know, it's a scenario in which even non-unionized, non-organized workplaces may may have a visit from the National Labor Relations Board, which typically is the agency that just deals with collective bargaining, union organizing. But when there is a discussion among employees of working conditions and that discussion takes place on Facebook, it's kind of the new digital age. Slander. Well, it's slander and it's it's um, potentially interfering with organizing rights. <clears throat> so even in a private employer setting, the NLRB could come in and take action, potentially, um, stating that the the employer was interfering with employees' rights to organize. Okay. Well, I would say that the organization, it would be two different types of posts. If you had like a Facebook, a Facebook group that was dedicated to organizing a private workplace, I would think that would be treated differently by the National Labor Relations Board rather than just a random bitch on Facebook on your profile status. You know, they... Um, I would think so too, and the NLRB is not treating them differently. Okay, it's mm. if there, for example, is a is a post on Facebook that is um, purely individual, purely an individual gripe. Uh huh. That may not be something the NLRB gets interested in. Yeah. But if it's something, uh, even if it's say, screw my employer, and then other people chime in, uh, that could be a discussion about working conditions under the NLRB's interpretation. So that's interesting. Another, I know I mentioned a second aspect of Facebook that's interesting right now in labor and employment, and that is, say 
I say, say there's an employee who claims sexual harassment. To what extent can the employer then, if that case goes to court uh, or that case gets filed and is in litigation, to what extent can the employer obtain the employee's full full Facebook profile? Right. And that would be relevant, for example, to show that the employee... A timeline or... A timeline. The employee <clears throat> engaged in certain conduct that um, suggests maybe the harassment wasn't, if it occurred, wasn't offensive. I mean, there's or all the sorts of the employee engages this type of conduct in other areas of their life and so consistently applied it couldn't be necessarily exactly um, implicating the employer. Well, and there's low level just, term, like and harassment as well. We have somebody at our church who likes to, there's a really cute girl at church and he likes to like everything she, that she posts. And you're like, oh God, he's at it again. Uh-oh. But you really can't, I mean, if you tried to bring a suit with that, it's just like, well, he just hits the like button a lot. You know, right. it's, it's just, it would be really hard to he prove. He has a new way, nouveau fetish. <laughs> yeah, yes. So what's the bar of like harassment on Facebook that I mean what's the legal bar well that's um hmm, that's a good question I don't know oh bring that back <laughs> say that again <laughs> we, had a, we had a mic issue what was that again yeah you want to throw that one it was good I said that's legal advice that's legal advice <laughs> <laughs> now you know employees often think that or people in general often think that their Facebook profiles um or Facebook data is private and I think what people don't still appreciate is that it's much less private than what people think, even if they have settings that would ensure or supposedly ensure privacy. And then what about the employee that doesn't do anything job related, but is into maybe some interests that the employer doesn't feel comfortable with, and then the employer retaliates against that? Which, I mean, it's, they're off Heather, the clock. you've thought about these things a lot. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's an aspect of the law that bugs me because... Let's hope the new employers aren't listening. <laughs> <laughs> your away time is your away time, and as long as it doesn't regard to wherever you're working, it, they should not be looking at it. That's kind of my theory on it. Well, what's interesting is that California now has a new law, effective January 1, 2013, where they can't ask employees or applicants to disclose their Facebook login or password. And they can't use other people who are friends with that person to investigate that person's Facebook page. So there are some protections that are um, being afforded to some employees now So that would preclude an employer from looking at that and making any type of employment decision based on that. Yeah. Okay, so if you're just tuning in, uh, you're listening to Kimberly Martin's Real People of Orange County, and we have in the studio with us today um, Michael Katz and Melissa Yoon. Michael Katz is managing partner, and Melissa Yoon is his partner at Katz and Yoon, um, a small boutique litigation firm here in Orange County and we're engaging in an interesting discussion about some of the some of the new things that are facing lawyers today that you know we didn't really have to deal with years ago these are seasoned lawyers albeit they look like kids in the office I don't know maybe that's more a reflection of my age than theirs but um, but they are we're, we're having a good discussion about Facebook and so this is really a timely issue for so many um, young students co- going through college right now about managing a very different aspect of your lives than we've ever had to deal with and what those implications are. I'm fascinated by the discussion. Mm-hmm. I am too. I don't think email was just beginning to come out when I was in college and it certainly wasn't widely used. Oh, she really is young. <laughs> <laughs> 
I was just trying to deal with, uh, what, you know, the first computer in WordPerfect, and I'll never forget pulling my hair out. That was that was my coming online experience. Well, at least I still remember true floppy disks. Yes, yeah, yeah. I saw that referenced in a movie. The five and a quarter and yes. the three and the whatever, yeah. 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 It's a very changing landscape. California last year passed an e-personation statute that basically is was very forward-thinking in the country, that prohibits and makes it a crime to impersonate someone else through media. And Oh, you laugh, but I had that happen to me. I no, almost lost a friend over but this. But Monte Teo, it's too late for him, yeah. but yeah. Monte I mean, Teo. Monte, yeah. Right. It, it's <laughs> happening a lot, and, and you're, um, unfortunately you're seeing, um, you know, the, the cases that get publicized are the ones where someone gets hurt or injured or it's a celebrity. Yeah. But there is a much broader level of conduct going on in high schools and mm-hmm. colleges. And some of it is the not-so-pretty side of people just sort of engaging in um, sort of what I call antisocial behavior um, against other people. What are and, they doing specifically? Well, I'm aware of one instance, and we just filed a lawsuit on behalf of someone where a young woman was applying for to her preferred college for early admission, for example, and another one of her classmates, presumably, we don't know, began communicating with the admissions office of this college under her alias oh, using man. a oh. Gmail account in her name. Where do people get the time and the energy to mess with other people like this? Well, it was horrible because they deliberately... Describe, they de- deliberately used language in the email that suggested that she was immature, that she didn't know how to put an English sentence together with proper diction. <laughs> this person was clever. They were very clever. It showed a lot of ingenuity, actually. And unfortunately, it was an act that um, was discovered inadvertently uh, because the young woman at issue ha- wondered why her emails weren't being communicated back she wasn't and, receiving replies. Right. And the reason was because they didn't have her email down as the official one. They mm. were really communicating with someone that wasn't her. Wow. And um, so that has become the subject of some work that we're doing now. But it just shows you the, the – it, it's another tributary, and there's so many of them. Yeah. Somebody impersonated a woman, and then he would invite men to, this ha- men to his house, and then he'd kill him. And he's currently Jesus on trial Christ. right now. Okay, well, so are you, I mean, this touches on, you know, some of the practice areas that are going to experience some growth in the next five years. Would you put some of these at the top, or do you see some others that you might want to add to the list? Oh, these, and and certainly privacy law is a fast-growing area with, you know, medical records, you know. Becoming electronic and so easily accessible. Seamless and shared and and and. All these trends that we're seeing that are very positive in, in a certain way and unifying a set of medical records and making them available to everyone has a, you know, a flip side, which is it changes the rules of the game in right. terms of what's private and what's not and what steps need to be taken to make things protected. What about privacy in regards to smartphones? Well, give me the example of what you mean by that. Well, the police without a warrant can basically follow you around using your mobile device. And then, you know, it's like a roving wiretap of where you're at precisely all the time. And so the police is... (laughs) Heather thinks about this stuff a lot. I mean, it is very interesting. We don't practice criminal law. And 
I don't really have an opinion about that. I mean, yeah. in some instances, you might find that to be a practice that could have very salutary benefits. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Even if invasive of one's privacy interests. <laughs> Come on, Heather. What's what's keeping you up at night? <laughs> <laughs> a lot. <laughs> Okay, so privacy issues being one. Um, do you think the law firms of today are prepared to deal with some of these changes? Give me some examples of what uh, lawyers, let's just say, sorry to even bring up the fu- the, the um, function of age, but lawyers that have been steeped in tradition, these law for older law firms you're talking about, what are they doing to retool and uh, address some of these newer issues? Or are they even able to? Oh, they're absolutely able to. Um, it, I would say this. You've touched on an interesting question, which the assumption of your question is that younger lawyers and the youth coming up today will be much more uh, conversant with technology and therefore have something to contribute that maybe the people in the field having grown up in the era of television, um, you know, and and no cable (laughs) even. That was a shot at me. Yeah. um, (laughs) Will not really understand or know or or fully know. uh, And the truth is that a lot of even very senior lawyers there are adept at what we do is we're adept at adapting. Yeah. And we're adept at learning new things. I have to learn a new industry every time I'm hired by a different client. How does the wine industry work? How does the machine tool industry work, you know, what, what about av- avionics, you know? It's a weird assumption because you don't go to law school if you can't adapt. I mean, my dad's the same way where he's an engineer and he has to adapt to new technology and every two years they retest them and, you know, if you don't, you know, if you're not adapted, you're out the door essentially. So, I mean, it's a weird assumption that lawyers can adapt to new things. That they can or that they can't? They can't. can't. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know that I was making that assumption, but I but I think what we touched on early on in the discussion was that these larger law firms have a f- an area of expertise for which they've been sought out for. And if that is the case, how do they then open up new channels? And, and it's probably because a client that's, you know, tried, true and tested and loyal, you know, has a problem that crops up. So they have to go in and delve in and figure it out could be or they've um yeah they have experiences with clients who are themselves cutting edge and Mm -hmm. they have to serve that client and they look for the skill sets that match those needs Mm. and stay abreast of the trends and a lot of firms really looked forward into the future and gaze into the future and say what's there that we need to become prepared for and so like other businesses they're planning for the future they're not just being reactive now, one of the things that businesses really require is customer loyalty. What is that like for a law firm? Is customer loyalty a big part of your success, client loyalty? I would say it's it's a major part of our success. We're at bottom and in every other way a service industry, mm-hmm. and the, the, we try to be as client-oriented as possible and to build loyalty and earn it through the work that we do and provide exemplary services and try to be responsive and listen and adapt. And that's really what we do. And I think if I can add on to that answer, both Michael and I were raised in the legal, in the legal profession and still um, exemplify this approach in our practices, and that is to partner with our clients to provide the advice that they need. And it may not 
you know, the the advice that they need, you know, if it's a litigation matter, then it's dealing with that issue. But we also seek to understand their business in a more global way so that we can provide effective advice. So it's not just advice that's effective at that moment, but it's advice that in the context of perhaps their larger business goals or strategies takes those into account as well. Okay. So if you're a litigation firm, you're basically saying you specialize in um, trials, correct? Fighting. Fighting. She, 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 <laughs> she, she, put, she put up her dukes in the, uh, in the studio here. <laughs> but um, so you, you talked, we, we talked about, Melissa, your area of specialty, uh, labor law and uh, employment-related matters. Michael, what, what do you love to duke it out over? I have a, um, a, a sort of broader and maybe thinner practice. I tend to do a very um, diverse uh, type of work. Okay. And, and um, you know, I represented the Port of San Diego when the Navy's 50-year lease came up for renewal for a, for a mere dollar under their contract. Huh. And we advised uh, the, the port that that was unconstitutional, that the Tideland property that they held in trust and had leased had violated the California Constitution. So the port had to tell the Navy, sorry, not a dollar, but maybe for a lot more, we'll enter into a new lease with you. That's not a case that's going to come up, you know. You can't develop an area of expertise in that. Fifty years later, I might have another case like that. Right. <laughs> okay, well, that's really that's really broad. Give me some examples of some other things that somebody would call you for. So, for, for example, I do a lot of trade secret misappropriation cases, whether it's a, a failed joint venture and they've shared their secrets in the context of trying to have something started. Mm-hmm or it's employees who leave to start a competing business. I do right. a lot of those, and they um, tend, you... tend to be very diverse. Okay. And so um, what do you love the most about? What, like, what are the, some of the kinds of cases that you like the most? That's one of my favorite because it's the kind of case where someone is wearing the so-called white hat mm-hmm. and someone's wearing the black hat. Right. And there's an art to making sure that your client's the one wearing the white hat at the end of the day. <laughs> have you yeah. have you um, have you represented both the person that uh, lost their trade secrets and the person that stole the trade secrets? Well, um, no one uh, ever steals. The no trade one secrets. ever steals it when I'm representing them. <laughs> well, <laughs> but yes, the answer is yes. The answer is it's both absolutely sides, yes. In other words. There's no side. It's. You know, there's always a dispute over what's a trade secret and what's not. Right. There's always a dispute. Well, restraint about, of trade, too, in California. That's, you know, important here. It is. And there's a very strong right to work ethic that right. means that the employee gets to keep the no, his knowledge or her knowledge and, and carry it forward. Base. Right. Yeah. So does that make those cases a little harder to parse out? No. <laughs> because and not for you, know, you. No, I would say this. I would say that typically there are things in the case, artifacts of evidence, if you will, which tend to establish more often than not whether someone knew that before they started or it's the kind of thing that, that is part of the stock and trade versus something that was very costly to develop, for example, and that was maintained in secret and that was valuable. Yeah. Okay. Do you do patent law as well? I, I've done a fair amount of patent litigation. Um in uh, really diverse areas, medical devices and other things. So I find that work fun, but it's not my exclusive practice. This might be a no comment, but have you been a part of like Apple and Google and their bitch fight or not? Well, the firm... Can you say that on the air? <laughs> no, yes. <I'm> <laughs> 
I think that's an apt description. Yeah. Um, no pun intended. <laughs> Not um, an Apple description. But uh, the firm that Melissa and I left before Morrison and Forster represented Apple in that dispute. Oh, okay. Oh, interesting. Oh, you were just so good at this. Wow. What are so, you doing? Research over there on the computer while we're chatting? No, I just know this stuff from my head. Oh, so, that's just... Yeah. I'm so envious. But that was a very knockdown, yeah. drag out dispute, and we watched it. And a lot of our former colleagues were very involved in that at, at the trial. And so we, like lawyers always do, revel in what happened and followed it and observed it. Yeah, I mean, how much man hours does something like that take? Because now Apple's going on to, you know, they're having a fight with Samsung now. I mean, bill. I mean, how many billable hours does a patent like thing usually take to sort out, or is it just indefinite? That's sort of like how many lawyers does it take to screw in a light bulb? (laughs) (laughs) Well, back to the litigation thing. Do other law firms hire you to litigate out cases that they have when they've been representing their clients for a long time? Let's say they have the relationship, but they aren't strong in litigation. Do they hire you? Yes. Somebody's nodding their head over there. (laughs) We both are vigorously. Yeah, that happens. Okay. So that, I mean, being litigators is very different from, you know, um, from being just a regular law firm. What's the relationship with your clients like? Is it different than that of other firms? Or do you have these long-term, you know, I raised your kids for you kind of relationships in your practice? It's a bit of everything. You have clients that who have loyalty to you and vice versa who've been with you for a long time and you know them well and you know what their needs are. And then there are new clients maybe who get turned over to you by another firm because maybe they have a conflict or maybe, for instance, we're more cost-effective than a big firm um, or our specialty more closely matches what they need. And, um, you know, then you have clients who say, geez, I hired these people and it's you know, $500,000 later, I feel no closer to having gotten what I needed. And then they decide to change lawyers. So you get every scenario under the sun. Okay. You want to comment, Melissa, or you're good? No comment. Okay. <laughs> what Michael said. Well, okay. So on the, and, on the, and then on a the wider issue, have relationships between clients and their, and their lawyers changed in recent times? I think that in the last five years has seen a sea change in the way companies um, use legal uh, resources. They're much more prudent about what firms they use for what purposes, how much they spend on particular transactions or particular conflicts, and to what extent they want to bring work in-house and hire lawyers to handle things that they see a lot of recurrently. Okay. Yeah. And so I would say overall, yes, uh, in-house counsel have become uh, very savvy about the how they use legal resources outside services, much more so than in the past. You don't see as many of the relationships as you did before where it's like those are those are our lawyers and whatever we have, we just send it to them. Yeah. Okay. Or we, you know, we <clears throat> just presumptively use the same lawyers all the time or the same solution all the time. So are there is it less likely to have an in-house firm um in this market or is it is it um is it more likely for that to happen? We find that different companies have different um dispositions on that. Some of them want to bring all their legal resources in-house and not use outside lawyers. Palm Wonderful is one of those companies that does that. 
um, for example, that you might know okay. um, in the market by their products. And then some do it for certain areas, but not others. Um, so, you know, it's an interesting dynamic. It's constantly changing. It's fluid. Right, right. Yeah. What right. are some of the emerging trends in your respective fields of law? Hmm. <laughs> Maybe like the impact of technology hmm. for the for the legal profession? Emerging trends. Um, gosh, well, an emerging trend just in litigation in general. I don't know how emerging this is. I suppose over the past five years we could we could classify it as emerging, but the explosion of digital data mm. that we create in our day-to-day lives and the digital footprints that we leave in all sorts of places. When you think about, you know, we were looking at this from a litigation perspective because we're litigators. When you think about a case that gets filed in court and what type of evidence is out there that's relevant to those claims, you have to now think about what type of digital evidence is out there and how the footprint the footprint uh, yeah the lingering lingering, you know trail right and how are we going to get that evidence and that's a tremendous undertaking and it's very costly and um that's a that's the foremost trend that comes to my mind is marshalling an extraordinary amount of data is is a cost associated with trying to track down the isp to to get that data that's a component of it Yeah. yeah There's something um, a lot less sexy, too, that's a trend that I find, which is um, because of the budget shortfalls at all levels, the courts are um, less equipped than they have been in the past to deal with conflict and litigation by civil litigants. Okay. And so you're finding a trend in many areas where there's a very scarce resource, that is the courts right. and the attention of the judges and they have a in 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 both federal and state court constitutional obligations to deal with criminal cases first that might consume a very large amount of the court's resources and you're reaching a point this is a trend it's not a sexy trend it's a bad trend where i feel that um and i see a lot of um lawyers in the community feel this way and judges too that we're reaching a tipping point if you will where um courts are struggling to provide services to people that need them. And you'll find not just, we're we're not just talking about our big clients, but everyday people, let's say a landlord-tenant dispute where there's a dispute over, hey, I have $2,500 in my security deposit I want back, and you get a small claims action and it doesn't go to trial for years on end. That's a lot of money for that individual. Right, yeah. And the courts aren't equipped to solve that problem. Are you seeing that there's going to be some creative alternatives, maybe private courts, um, private judges? What kinds of things could come from that? There already have been a lot of efforts. I know that um, in California... Superior Court, there has been an effort to allow the parties to elect to have sort of a a, qua- a quick trial with a very short time span to solve mm-hmm. you know a dispute that's maybe only kind of like 000. speed dating, speed speed trialing. <laughs> yes, except unlike speed speed dating, usually one of the parties doesn't want to really do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you we were talking about, it's hard to get. Um, civil litigants in in the court and actually have their day in court. What do you think of the repercussions of the small claims court 
um, decision recently where a woman took Honda to small claims court over the uh, miles per gallon over her hybrid Civic. I mean, is that a new trend where people are going to just take the companies of, like uh, civil quick, court? Quick refund. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, I, I on the one hand, don't want to comment about that case. Yeah. But on the other hand, there I want to... There must be a reason. But, yeah, there are <laughs> m- multiple. <laughs> but on the other hand, I want to make an observation, which okay. is I don't think that that's necessarily a great legal strategy since those decisions can be reviewed de novo in superior court, and it ends up being a situation where someone does actually need a lawyer, and there is a lot more work involved, and it may not be sort of a great way to approach that situation at the end of the day. Is that case done or did Honda appeal? No comment. No comment. Oh, <laughs> I, you know, those are questions we can ask when we're not on the air, maybe. I don't know. They might be just as close mount, close lip out, outside the studio. Um, okay, so there's there's something that impacts maybe the, the college students on campus uh, when we're talking about the law degrees uh, being reduced to a two-year program. Talk to me a little bit about your feelings for that. Right now, there's a very interesting debate taking place both at the American Bar Association level amongst the governing body and also in the legal community, particularly within law schools, over whether um, law schools should continue to be three-year programs or whether they should um, inaugurate, if you will, two-year programs. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that the states themselves require that someone have X number of years of law school before Mm -hmm. they can practice. But that's being seriously revisited right now. And it's a very, very interesting topic because it's partly driven by the increased costs of school and the diminished number of jobs that are out there for people to repay their student debt. I I think I saw somewhere that the, the... in order to repay your debt, you would have to earn on an annual basis right away two-thirds of the entire debt that you had. Yeah. Um, and, and that's tough in a time when there aren't a lot of jobs out there compared to what there used to be. And so it's a very practical um, attempt to solve a problem. But at the same time, there have always been people who've, who've debated whether three years of law school is too much. And I know that Melissa and I had this debate amongst ourselves. She loved law school and didn't want to she give up She could have stayed there forever, huh? <laughs> no, not forever, but I definitely would not have given up my third year for anything. Uh-huh. I was I was editor-in-chief of my law review, and that was only something that I could do in my third year. Yeah, um, yeah, that's so, exciting, actually. Yeah. Uh, my husband's a, a retired physician, and, and he said, oh, if he could, he'd just go do medical school all over. He absolutely loved it. Yeah, and by my third year, I had been one of the founders of um, a homeless and housing advocacy group at NYU, and I pretty much was trying to do that full-time and not pay attention to my courses, if I could at all possible, other than my clinical courses, which I loved. Oh, okay. All right. Um, any, you know, we have a very short amount of time left. Anything else we want to touch on while we're here? Well, I personally want to put in a plug to people who may be considering law school or even students who are in law school and considering where they want to practice to really rethink um, Orange County as a destination. I know that's a little bit partisan given that we're here at UCI right now, but it also is a reflection on my own life choices Mm -hmm. that I want to share because I really was coming from somewhere else, uh, somewhere people might be trying to get to. Right. um, And found myself strangely enamored with 
practicing law here in Orange County and very satisfied by it. Okay. And um, I, I think that's a message I want to send out to your listeners Thank um, you. at all levels. What about, um, what about the concern that there's a dire lack of jobs? Is that the case in Orange County? Are you finding that uh, the young law students are able to find uh, work? I think the um, there is work out there. It's not nearly what it was when Melissa and I came out of law school, where nearly everyone had a job and multiple job offers. Uh, but on the other hand, there are jobs out there, and um, I think people have to be very prudent about how they go about choosing courses and choosing a career path and, and be v- very sensitive about what leads to something and what might not and what their choices entail. That, that requires a, you know, maybe a heightened degree of, of um, planning, if you will. You can't just back into things, but the jobs are out there. When the economy picks up and we can staff the courts more, um, do you think the jobs will pick up after that? Or do you think this is a permanent thing? I don't think this is a permanent thing. I think it's a very slow recovery that we're seeing. So yeah. I, I do think things are going to pick up. And I um, I think we're all hoping that the budget situation with the court gets resolved soon. Yeah. So, Does anybody have any predictions of how they see, how they see that resolving? Um, <laughs> yeah, a there's scratcher. a lot of chin rubbing in the studio right now. Yeah. Well, but then it would be nice if it was part of a stimulus package, but that won't help. But that wouldn't pass the House of Representatives. <laughs> but yeah. Look, I, I I think that what you're, what you might be interviewing an economist or a business person on another day, and you should you'll ask them that question, and they will tell you that if China pursues a growth strategy under its current leadership. And if Europe manages to stabilize to some degree and enter perhaps into a trade pact with the United States, and if a few more of these sort of benchmarks of stability stay in place for long enough, there is a recovery going on. And I think that it's anticipated to continue in 2013. It may not be as robust as many people would as like, hoped, yeah. but it is under it is underway. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I've really enjoyed having you. I didn't know what to expect from this interview, and it's been really, really stimulating. Um, Melissa Yoon, Michael Katz, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much, Kimberly and Heather, for having us. We yeah. learned that the opposition yeah, we really enjoyed comes ourselves. mainly from Republican Good. politicians. And so, um, yeah, that's weird. But um, Yeah, I was going to say, anyways, that's kind yeah. of a mistake I'd make. <laughs> yeah, no, Matt Kaplan isn't here yet, unfortunately. Yeah, he oh, he I is. Okay, cool. Uh, so up next is Matt Kaplan. Uh, bringing you Counterspin and then following that Planetary Radio. Yes, at 5.30. And Matt's always a gentleman. We love to hear from him. Yeah. And then the music starts with Kyle and things are square. It's abbreviated again because of women's basketball, so they're going to be playing. So enjoy that. Uh, This is 88.9 KCI FM in Irvine.